Good morning. Welcome to Worship at Fount of Life. We're glad to have you joining us today in God's house with God's people to hear God's word and sing God's praises. Um, today we are continuing our, our Lent sermon series that we began last Sunday called The Struggle is Real. Um, today we're talking about the struggle with guilt, uh, something we are all familiar with. And uh, we'll dive into that, especially in our sermon, but you'll hear that theme, um, our struggle with guilt and God's solution to it, um, carried through our, our scripture readings, our, our, our hymns for the day, um, our confession, our forgiveness, all of those things. That's all laid out in the worship folder as well as up on the screen. You can use whichever is more comfortable, more convenient for you. Um, our opening hymn this morning is hymn 391. God loved the world so that he gave. It's you know, based on John 3.16, right? That's our, our sermon text for today, so it ties and fits in uh, incredibly well. We join in singing hymn 391. The English language is one of the hardest languages to learn. If you've ever had to learn another language, you know that, that so much of it is about learning the rules of the language, right? Learning about when, what singular and plural looks like, the different tenses of verbs and so on. And the reason that English is so difficult is because English tends to break the rules a lot, right? And not just in a slang or any of that kind of stuff, but just the normal way to go from a, a present tense verb to a past tense verb is to add ed at the end, right? Talk becomes talked. And walk becomes walked. And bike becomes biked. And run becomes... Hmm, not run. It's ran, right? And, and write, it's not righted, it's wrote. And then you get pronunciation, we do all kinds of goofy things in English. I mean, look at these words. You've got no, simple enough. You add a W, and not, it's not no, wo, wo, it's now. But then you add an S to the beginning of it, and it's not snow, it's snow. And you add a K to it, and it goes back to being the fir- where we started, right? No. And it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Why do some letters change the, the sound of the vowel O and some don't? There's no rhyme. There's no reason. You just have to know it. English breaks so many of the rules, and it makes it hard to learn. In fact, there are some, some words that I have a feeling, even for this highly educated and grammatically correct group, I bet there's some that even for you, they're hard to say. They're really difficult words, words like this, I'm sorry. Or maybe the hardest words in the entire English language, I was wrong. Those are really hard words, aren't they? They're not hard, though, because the the vowels change or the tenses get weird. They're hard because of our hearts. In part, it's because our hearts, we have this ego in them, right? This pride that, that just really doesn't want to say I was wrong. That doesn't like to admit that. And in part, it's because of a thing called guilt. Now when we talk about guilt, we usually talk about it 
in the sense of a feeling, right? I feel so guilty about fill in the blank. But here's the thing to understand. It's actually our first takeaway today. It's that guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a status. You are either guilty or not guilty. You are either guilty or innocent, right? And so if you feel guilty, chances are you probably are guilty. I mean, if you, if you fail at something, if you make a promise and you, you fail to keep it, and you feel guilty about it, you feel badly, well, it's because you are guilty. If you drop the ball and you let down your boss, your teacher, your friend, your spouse, your parents, your kids, and you feel bad, you feel guilty. If you say something that hurts someone else and you feel guilty, it's because you are guilty. But there are times where the feeling of guilt or the, the lack of the feeling of guilt can be misleading. Right? Think of you're driving down the road and you're just kind of cruising along, just no, no, no big hurry, just tooling along, and all of a sudden, whoosh, flashing lights come out behind you. You pull over and the officer walks up to your car. Do you know how fast you were going? Yeah. And you tell him honestly, not a twinge of guilt. And the officer says, well, the speed limit changed about half a mile back, and I clocked you going 12 over. Something you had no feeling of guilt about. In fact, you even felt a little bit indignant at first, and yet you were guilty of speeding. So if we are going to try to determine our guilt based on our feelings, well, we're going to be misled a lot. So we need something that's more of an objective standard. Something that, as we deal with this struggle of guilt, something that helps us to know when we are guilty and when we are not, so that we have an accurate measure of it. And God has just the answer. Look what he says in Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. God's laws are his do's and his don'ts. Right? They are his objective standard of right and wrong, and therefore, they are the objective standard that help us determine our guilt and our innocence. And these verses, well, they, they say it, right? But the sad truth is even more clear just three verses later. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are guilty. And to try to deny it, it'd be lying, it'd be perjury, right? I didn't do it, God. Yeah, you did. I've got the tape. I've got the video evidence. We, we did it. We know it. But what makes guilt more dangerous is the devil. You know the other name the devil is called in the Bible? Satan. 
He's called that because that name, Satan, means the accuser. Because that's what he does. He accuses you and me of failing to obey God. Of of failing to do the things God says to do and not doing the things God says not to do. He accuses us of falling for his temptations and his lies, of not loving God and certainly not loving other people. And so that feeling of guilt that we feel is often because we are guilty and the and Satan, he's right there, isn't he? Relentlessly accusing us, trying to pile up guilt on top of guilt on top of guilt. And this is where guilt is especially dangerous. Because Satan's goal is not merely to tempt you to sin and therefore you are guilty. That's just step one. His goal is that because of your guilt, he wants to lead you to despair. He wants to accuse you and accuse you and accuse you so relentlessly that you feel that there is no hope, there is no help, no one could possibly love you. You did what? How dare you? You thought that? You said that? And you think God would forgive it? You're a terrible person. You know those words? Heard them, thought them, felt them? We all have. And guilt is like, it's this insidious thing. It's like a cancer, right? It, it kind of eats away at us from the inside out where, where other people, they can't see our guilt. But often they can see the effects of it. It brings us to our second takeaway. The longer guilt is left untreated, the worse it seems. It, it becomes this looming thing, right? This, this thing that I'm at the point where I, I can't walk it back. I can't, the devil wants to accuse us and, and help make us think that it's so bad, it's so terrible, and it's been so long that this guilt is such a mountain that just a simple I'm sorry, just feeling guilty and apologizing, it's not enough. It won't cut it. I once knew a young man named Trent. Trent had gotten into some, some trouble as a teenager, and he knew that the only way to be free from the trouble of his past was to have a clean break and to move away. And so he did. He moved far away from where he grew up. And he ended up living near the church where I was serving at the time, a number of states away. I, I got to know Trent. He came to church he was working to turn his life around. He had gotten a job. He was staying clean. He, he loved to serve um, and help. And he knew that coming to ch- he came to church because he knew that there is where God gave him the thing that he needed the most, peace and forgiveness. But then Trent got hurt on the job. And it was a legitimate injury. He got seriously injured. And, and he was knocked out of work and he was, couldn't make it to church for, for uh, several weeks But what was worse was that Trent got hooked on his painkillers. And he quit coming to church, and he wouldn't answer my calls, and he wouldn't respond to my text messages. And 
finally, a couple of months later, I caught him when he was at home. Not caught him, but I found him at home, right? Knocked on his door, hey! And he answered. And I said, what happened? Where have you been? Why'd you, why'd you quit coming to church? And his answer, I feel so guilty. It's been so long that everybody's going to wonder where I was and what happened, and they'll all know about my relapse. Except there were like two people at our whole church that knew about Trent's past. No one was wondering if he had fallen off the wagon. Everybody was wondering if he was okay. They knew that he had a, a deep desire to be in God's house and hear the forgiveness of God's word, And that's the thing they were concerned about, his spiritual well-being, his physical well-being. Trent, where are you, my brother? And that's the problem with guilt, though, isn't it? It's very real, and it is very dangerous, and the struggle with it is very real. And our enemy, he uses it against us. And he doesn't play fair, and it doesn't go away. And if we don't deal with it, it will eventually destroy us for eternity. So we try to come up with ways to deal with it, right? To, to fix the problem of guilt, to deal with the struggle of guilt. And what ways do we come up with? Well, we medicate it. We think that if we drown it in alcohol or numb it with drugs or downplay it and diminish it with some some retail therapy or some sex or pornography or anything that'll light up the pleasure center in our brain for just a moment and cause us to forget about this thing I've done that the devil will not stop accusing me of. It'll be okay. But it isn't. Because the short-term fix wears off. And then the devil's got a whole new fresh set of accusations to make, doesn't he? A whole new pile of guilt to heap on us because we are guilty. Or we try to to pretend it never happened, to deny it, to stuff it, right, to bury it way down deep and cover it up and let no one know anything about any of this. Even if that means that we have to, to cut people off, to distance other people from ourselves because if we didn't, then we'd have to acknowledge this thing that we did. You've probably heard of David, right? As a young man, David was bold, standing up for for God and God's honor and God's people, and he was going out to fight the giant Goliath with nothing but his slingshot and a few stones and an unwavering trust in God. But you probably also know that David was later one of the greatest kings, the greatest king in the entire history of God's Old Testament people. And maybe you also know about one of David's greatest spiritual and moral failings. It's recorded in Scripture, right? When he saw Bathsheba, lusted after her, slept with her, and when she told him she was pregnant, what did he do? Well, he didn't admit it. He didn't deal with it. Instead, he he tried to cover it up. And so he recalled her husband back from the front lines, Uriah, one of his bravest special forces soldiers. 
And when that didn't work, then he sent Uriah back with, with the, the orders that ended up leading to his death, right? To leave him exposed in battle, he was killed. And when the news broke that he had been killed, David, well, he married this poor widow. And not only was David in the eyes of so many people guiltless, but he was, oh, what a guy, what a king, what a good man. It took a long time for David to acknowledge the guilt of his sin. He had sinned. And then to to try to cover up his sin, he sinned. And he sinned, and he sinned, and he sinned. And he heaped guilt upon guilt upon guilt upon guilt to try to, to make it go away. He tried to stuff it and to bury it, even deep within himself, and none of it worked. There were really only two people who knew the whole sordid affair. David and God. But listen to how David described that period of time where he refused to deal with his guilt, to acknowledge his guilt. Look what he says in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Right? David thought his guilt was a terrible thing because it was painful, it was uncomfortable. He didn't have a way to, to fix it and it ate away at him and it deprived him, it robbed him of, of peace, of joy, of happiness. But here's the thing. David thought it was terrible, but God didn't. It's our third takeaway. It's that God uses guilt for good because God has the answer for guilt. So here's God's answer. To our struggle with guilt, it's John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's answer to guilt was not to condemn the world, but to send his own son to save it. God sent his own son to take all of the guilt, not just the feelings of guilt, but the actual guilt of our failings and sins, all of the guilt of all of the people on himself. Jesus took all of the blame for everything that we have ever thought or said or done that broke God's perfect moral standard, his holy will, his holy law. And he didn't just take the blame for it, he took the punishment for it. He suffered the wrath of God, the separation from God, so that we, would, we wouldn't be separated from him forever, but he saved us. God should have declared us guilty and condemned us forever, but Jesus came to save us. And he did that so that we would be free from guilt. Today and tomorrow and forever. He did it so that we wouldn't have to try to cope with our guilt by trying to drink it or smoke it or or buy it, or surf it away, which never actually works, but that we would know 
that we, we stand before God forgiven because of Jesus' payment for us. He came to free us from guilt so that we wouldn't try to, to hide it from him or from others, so that we wouldn't stuff it and bury it and have it eat away at us, but that we would bring it to him and admit it and know that it was paid for in full. David experienced that firsthand. After living with guilt for more than a year, after having it eat away at him, deprive him of happiness and joy and peace, well, listen to what he said in Psalm 32. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. After his guilt had eaten away at him, David finally found the solution. It's our last takeaway. God's answer for guilt is forgiveness in Jesus. See, the devil wants you to think that that there's no way God could love you, that God could forgive that, that he could be willing to overlook this thing or unhear this or that. You're right, God can't unhear it and he can't overlook it and that's why Jesus came to pay for it. Because the idea that God can't forgive you or doesn't love you, those are lies. Just like the devil always does. There's a reason why so many people put John 3.16 around their homes, at work, on their eye black as athletes, right? There's a reason why so many people commit it to memory and put it in their hearts because it's a reminder of God's love for you, of his salvation for you, even or especially when you fail, when you fall, when you sin. Jesus didn't come to condemn you to hell. Apart from him, he came to rescue you so that you would have life with him and in him. So that when you goof up, when you fail, when you really screw up big time, because those will all happen again, and the devil is right there, Satan, accusing you, how dare you, who do you think, oh, that's so terrible, you think God could forgive that? Counter his lies with the truth of God's word and the truth of God's promises. Because God so loved the world. That includes me and it includes you. That he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him, and I do, and so do you, will not perish, but will have eternal life with him. And that makes it a whole lot easier to admit to God, I was wrong. I'm sorry. To say those words that we don't like to say, that we really have a hard time pronouncing. But because we know that Jesus came to take away all of our guilt, it really frees us up to say them to God and to know that all of them are gone. That we are free from our guilt, that his mercy is more. Amen. 
Please stand. May the peace of our God, which goes beyond our understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus. We confess together what we believe using the words of the Nicene Creed. It's a confession of faith Christians have been using since around 300 AD. We confess together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, his only Son, eternally begotten of the Father. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became fully human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.